The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Christ. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born anew, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born anew. The wind blows where it wills, and you hear the sound of it. But you do not know whence it comes or whither it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can this be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand this? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So, if every Christian leader, at least the ones that you respect, let's go with that, woke up tomorrow and said that we no longer need to hold to the doctrine of the Trinity, would it make any practical difference in your life? I think for a lot of us, if we're being honest, we'd have to say, maybe, at best, heading toward the no end of the spectrum. Most of us can get through the entire Christian story without bothering with the Trinity. It's actually pretty easy. Listen. In the beginning, God created the world, and he wanted the world to love him, and he wanted human beings to love and worship him, and when we rejected him, his anger was stoked, and our punishment is death and hell, but his mercy is such that Jesus came and took our punishment so that we could be saved and go to heaven. That's simple. The Trinity is a pretty thorny doctrine. And it's not one that we talk about enough so that it, we can really see clearly how it impacts our lives. In fact, if you inhabit the exact subset of nerdy liturgical theology Twitter that I do, which if you don't, uh, I highly recommend it. If you think uh, Kim Kardashian gets rough with Kanye's haters, you don't know anything about what liturgical nerds can really do to one another on Twitter. It's fascinating. But there was a bunch of people who were like, it's Trinity Sunday, you should preach about something else to avoid falling into heresy. Does the Trinity really make practical difference in our lives? 
Now, I'm going to betray my hand and let you know that it's actually very, very important because one of the creeds that is part of Anglican life that historically was to be read at least five times a year in Anglican churches is the Athanasian Creed. And the Athanasian Creed begins by saying, whoever desires to be saved should above all hold to the Catholic faith. Anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. Now this is the Catholic faith, says the Creed. What do you think comes next? Jesus died for our sins. God so loved the world. The Athanasian Creed says that the Catholic faith is that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. That's the thing. That's the big old thing that you have to believe to be a Christian. Really? The Trinity? Turns out Twitter and the people that I engage with there aren't really doing anything new. There's a story told of a monastery in England where outside the chapel is a plaque that says, here the monks would gather every Sunday to hear a sermon given by the abbot, except Trinity Sunday, given the difficulty of the subject. No sermon that day. I mean, I don't know about you, but when we think Trinity, we tend to think boring old dusty theology books in smelly church basement classrooms. So why would the Athanasian Creed make it such a big, bold heading, the centerpiece of the Christian faith? I think somewhere in there, the Trinity must be the greatest gift ever, and the fact that we might not pick up on that means that we're potentially missing something. So this evening, I want us to consider really briefly the nature of the Trinity, so I don't inadvertently spill into heresy. And the disasters that we create when we deny the Trinity, and then finally, the gift that the Trinity is. As you can see in the Athanasian Creed, Christian theology defines the Trinity as three persons of one essence. It's not three gods, it's one God. But it's also not unipersonalism or monadism. And over the centuries, theologians have tried all sorts of ways of creating analogies that will help us get our heads around this concept. And to be honest, all of them are bad. None of them work because there is nothing else in the world like God. Clover, ice, water, and steam, none of it works. Get it all out of your head. A big part of the reason they don't work is because they tend to depersonalize the Trinity. And I realize that it's difficult for us to conceive of one God in three persons, each of which is fully God. And so we're going to just stick with Michael Reeves' very simple definition. The Trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loving each other, existing in loving unity. That's the Trinity. Which means that the nature of God, the thing that is behind everything else in the universe, isn't just some impersonal power or force. It's not the divine watchmaker. It's not some unmoved mover. It is a unity of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the reason that this is so important is, is, has to do with the problem of the, the sort of Christian story that I told you at the beginning. The problem with the story I told you at the beginning is that, A, it isn't really actually completely Christian, and B, it's deeply problematic, not simply because it's heretical, 
and doesn't actually affirm explicitly the Trinity, but it's deeply problematic in the way that it shapes our lives. If you have a monadic God, right, a a one-person God, we'll call him the Unitarian God, you can still have a lot of similar plot points in the Christian story, but in the end, it's entirely unchristian, and it results in disaster, because the subtext of the story I just told you is of a lonely, needy, selfish, angry God, a God who needs human beings to respect him, and if they don't, he's thrown into a rage, right? Because he's alone, and then he finally created this thing, and we rejected him. I mean, in this scheme, salvation almost looks like we're being saved from God, doesn't it? He's certainly not someone we want to be around very much. The trouble is, this is the God that much of our culture conceives of, and even more dangerously, it is the God that most often gets associated with Christianity. A needy, petty, angry, lonely God. He's this sort of all-powerful Santa Claus who obsessively keeps a list of who's naughty and nice, and he only gives gifts to the nice boys and girls, and everybody else gets hellish, fiery charcoal. John Calvin was a cranky theologian who lived 500 years ago. He said that our minds, our imaginations, our hearts are idol factories. They are just constantly churning out idols in a rejection again and again of the true God. We want something to worship, but we don't want the true God. And I would suggest to you that most of us have created this exact idol. We have distorted God from a community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and instead we have lurking in the back of our minds this selfish, needy, angry, power-hungry Santa Claus. Calvin would say we do this almost imperceptibly, even to ourselves. And so what ends up happening is even when I'm up here talking, and you've been in church maybe your whole life, when I say God, you hear mean Santa. And it doesn't matter what the preachers say, in the back of our minds is always lurking, yeah, but isn't this God angry and jealous and demanding? And try as we might, we just don't want to have a close relationship with someone like that. Jesus, maybe, but he's sort of like cushioning us from this angry God figure. But it's worse than just that. David Foster Wallace, who was another cranky author, he died just a few years ago. He once told a group of college students, you've probably seen it online about a thousand times by now in your life. This is water, anybody, right? If you haven't listened to it or read it, you should totally, totally do that this evening. But he's talking to this group of college students who are graduating. And in the middle of his speech, he tells them, everybody worships. Nobody gets a choice about that. Everybody worships. We were made to worship. The only thing you get to choose is what you're going to worship. And then he goes on to say something very profound. He says, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power. You will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. 
Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. He ends by saying the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. They are. It's that they're unconscious. We don't even know that we're worshiping these things. And what I would suggest to you is that he's absolutely right, and whatever the little g God may be in your life, money, beauty, power, intellect, there's this other false God behind it, this big dead idol that is the Unitarian God. See, if you worship a God who is alone and needy and selfish and angry when he's rejected, then guess how you're going to start acting? Because if you don't know by now, you become like what you worship. You'll start to use things and people as ways of finding self-fulfillment, and it will never be enough. I mean, this is playing out in a thousand different ways in our culture. If you've followed any of the new studies on dating trends alone, you will recognize this quite clearly. Young men in this country are tallying up between 40 and 50 sexual partners a year, not an ounce of commitment. I read an article about this phenomenon last year, and this one young man was interviewed in Vanity Fair, and I don't think it was anonymous, okay? And when he was asked by the interviewer why he wouldn't want to be in an actual relationship with somebody rather than just hook up all the time, he was very honest. You can't be selfish in a relationship, he said, and it feels good to just do what I want. A self-centered God makes for a self-centered man. If we do not retain an explicitly, gloriously, mysteriously Trinitarian idea of God, we are in danger of worshiping an idol that leads to destruction and death. But when we have a firm grasp of the Trinity, even if we don't understand why it's not like a clover or water, steam, and ice, right? When we have an idea of the Trinity, all of this nastiness goes away because we can see a picture of a God that we actually like, a God that deep down we want to be with. Because it turns out the triune God is really nothing like the mean Santa we have created in our idol factory brains. The triune God is a joyful, loving community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have existed in unity and love and service from eternity past. And the Father's enthusiasm for the Son and the Spirit, and the Son's enthusiasm for the Father and the Spirit, and the Spirit's enthusiasm for the Father and the Son is so raucous that it's that sort of exuberant, too many bubbles in the champagne sort of love that just explodes into creation. I've read this before, but it's just so good. So I have to read it again. Robert Capon describes for us what creation might have been like from a Trinitarian point of view. He says, let me tell you why God made the world. One afternoon before anything was made, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit sat around in the unity of their Godhead discussing one of the Father's fixations. From all eternity, it seems, he had had this thing about being. He would keep thinking up all kinds of unnecessary things, new ways of being and new kinds of beings to be. 
And as they talked, God the Son suddenly said, really, this is absolutely great stuff. Why don't I go out and mix us up a batch? And God the Holy Spirit said, terrific, I'll help you. So they all pitched in, and after supper that night, the Son and the Holy Spirit put on this tremendous show of being for the Father. It was full of water and light and frogs. Pine cones kept dropping all over the place, and crazy fish swam around in the wine glasses. There were mushrooms and mastodons, grapes and geese, tornadoes and tigers, and men and women everywhere to taste them, to juggle them, to join them, and to love them. And God the Father looked at the whole wild party and said, wonderful. It's just what I had in mind. Tov, tov, tov. It's good. It's good. It's good. And all God the Son and God the Holy Spirit could think of to say was the same thing. Tov, tov, tov. So they shouted, tov miod, very good, superlative good, the best. And they laughed for ages and ages, saying things like how great it was for beings to be and how clever of the Father to think of the idea and how kind of the Son to go to all that trouble of putting it together and how considerate of the Spirit to spend so much time directing and choreographing. And forever and ever they told old jokes. And the Father and the Son drank their wine in unitate spiritus sancti, in the unity of the Holy Spirit. And they all threw ripe olives and pickled mushrooms at each other for omnia sacula saculorum, for ages and ages. Amen. Capon's not an idiot, so he ends by saying this. It is, I grant you, a crass analogy. But crass analogies are the safest. Everybody knows that God is not three old men throwing olives at each other. Not everyone, I'm afraid, is equally clear that God is not a cosmic force or a principle of being or any other dish of celestial blancmange we might choose to call him. Accordingly, I give you the central truth that creation is the result of a Trinitarian bash and leave the details of the analogy to sort themselves out as best they can. That's what the community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are like. Do you see? They have been loving and serving and enjoying each other forever. The Christian story is about this God having such overflowing joy in himself that it bursts out into creation, into humanity. And so, of course, rejecting this community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit leads to all sorts of nasty, horrible things. But it's not because God is a meanie who doesn't want us to have fun without him. It's because the entire universe is designed on the self-giving, other-serving love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Indeed, salvation in such a story would be about being restored into fellowship with this community. The greatest dream anyone could have, could have would be to be brought into the love and joy they have among each other. Which means the Athanasian Creed is exactly right. The only way to be saved from a hell of our own making is to confess that God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Christian story isn't good news starting when Jesus came to take all the punishment for us. The Christian story is good news from the word go, from before the word go. Creation springs forth as a creative project of the Father who speaks the word his Son, and the Spirit hovers over the water, bringing order out of chaos. 
And as we saw last week, likewise, in the new creation, the Spirit hovers over Mary and Christ is conceived, and then again over the church, and the church is born. In resurrection, in the ascension, at Pentecost, all of these things are joyful movements of the one God, the community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And discipleship, being a follower of Jesus, is being brought into that love, literally being baptized into Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I encourage you this week, start forcing the Trinity to make practical difference in your life because it really does change everything. And you can use part of St. Patrick's breastplate to assist you all. Close with this. This prayer from St. Patrick says, I arise today through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through belief in the threeness, through confession of the oneness of the creator of creation. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.